KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. A state amendment to ensure abortion rights will be on the California ballot. For me, this is about making sure that we absolutely protect this right. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Immigrant rights activists react to the truck smuggling tragedy in San Antonio. It's the same thing that leads migrants to hike through the desert here in San Diego or hop on a raft, even though they don't know how to swim. Their situation at home must be so horrible that they feel there's no other option but to come to the U.S. San Diego's fired school superintendent considers a lawsuit, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde find their voice in a musical production in Ocean Beach. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom. That's how California's proposed constitutional amendment protecting abortion rights begins. On Monday, the state legislature approved the amendment. It will be submitted for voter approval on the November ballot. The amendment to place abortion rights in the California Constitution is only one of the steps being taken to secure those rights for residents and for women seeking abortions from other states. State leaders say they expected the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, and they've been getting ready. Joining me is one of the leaders of the effort to secure reproductive rights in California, State Senate President Tony Atkins of San Diego. And welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Maureen. It's always good to see you. So Roe v. Wade was overturned on Friday. The legislature passed the constitutional amendment Monday. But the process wasn't as simple and quick as it may seem, was it? Well, it it was pretty quick for the legislature to put this on the ballot. We had a short period of time, June 30th this week, to make sure that it passed both houses. So it went fairly quickly through the Senate, three committees in the Senate, two committees in the assembly before it hit the assembly floor. And you're right, it passed on Monday, 58 votes in support. We needed a supermajority in both houses. Now it will go on the November ballot. And uh, we need a simple majority of California voters to uh, reaffirm their support for abortion rights in California. There are already laws in California that protect reproductive rights, including abortion. What would this constitutional amendment actually do? I think it enshrines into the Constitution the right to privacy, which is also abortion. And this constitutional amendment will say abortion. Our Constitution right now says the right to privacy. But if you looked at the opinion that was issued by the Supreme Court, they basically said the right to privacy does not include abortion. And I know there are those that say this is maybe just symbolic. I don't feel that way. A court made a decision that for 50 years, a right to privacy that included abortion is now gone. We need to make sure that is not the case in California. While our values reflect 
the support of privacy to include abortion. We need our constitution to say that so that no court, no elected official can take that right away going forward. Has the proposed amendment gotten any strong opposition from conservatives or religious groups? Well, of course. Uh, I mean, that has always been the case. From the day that Roe versus Wade was passed, there have been efforts underway to undo it at the federal level, state by state. And what you're seeing now is, is the success of that effort on a state by state basis. But in California, we very much believe and value um, the right to abortion and contraception to accept it or refuse it. And so we just want to make sure that it's enshrined and we reaffirm peace of mind for those who live in California, that they will not lose this right either now or going forward for future generations. What impact do you think this will have on voter turnout in November? I know that's a huge discussion point. For me, Maureen, this is personal. You know, I worked in a clinic that provided services for women and their families, including abortion and contraception. For me, this is about making sure that we absolutely protect this right. And so I hope it spurs turnout because I hope people understand what's at stake. Uh, For those of us my age, and older, we know what the impacts of reversing Roe versus Wade will be on real people's lives. And so, you know, now our daughters, our granddaughters are going to today grow up in a world where they don't have the protections that we had. And so I hope people turn out to reaffirm and say, this is important. This matters. You cannot take away our rights. So I hope it does drive turnout. But you know, that's not the reason I supported and, and moved this constitutional amendment forward. Since the Supreme Court decision last Friday, six states have banned abortion. Other states are lined up to do the same. How do you see California's role in providing access to women from out of state? Well, I think we're going to be here for those women. And Maureen, I think Friday, the gut punch to me was that in California, we will be okay. We're going to make sure that we enshrine the right in our constitution. We're going to make sure that we have access to services and more providers and more support. But for those women that woke up in one of those states, I cannot tell you how that makes me feel. I grew up in one of those states. And so I want to be here to welcome women and families and those who come from other states. And in fact, we already know that they are coming. Ask the providers. We've already seen an increase. How is California prepared to protect women and doctors from possible retaliation in their home states? Well, a couple of things. Um, I think you saw the governor's executive order on that issue just uh, on Monday. And secondarily, he also on Friday signed AB 1666 by uh, Assemblymember Rebecca Bauer-Cahan that speaks to that issue of liability. So whatever it takes, the future of abortion council that was formed last year in the wake of the piece of legislation in Texas really was all about trying to figure out where our gaps were, what we needed to do to protect women and to be there for those who may come here. So that resulted in 13 pieces of legislation, more than $200 million in the California state budget that we will act on tonight to make sure that we are shoring up all of the resources and accessibility and we focus on workforce, all of those things. Do you foresee any retaliation from the states that are banning abortion towards California for providing access? Look, we have to do what we need to do to protect our residents and to be there for the practicality of the fact 
that if those states are not providing access to their residents, they're still going to seek the service. Obviously, the Supreme Court said this is a state's rights issue. And so California takes that seriously. And we're going to be prepared to support Californians and anyone uh, that makes their way here that needs the service. Now, some anti-abortion politicians are talking about the potential for a federal ban on abortion. And in that case, California laws, even a state constitutional amendment, won't preserve abortion rights. Does that concern you? Well, I think it speaks to even more why we are doing what we're doing on SCA 10 and getting this on the ballot in November. Uh, If the Supreme Court ruling recently that overturned Roe versus Wade speaks to states' rights, Obviously, I hope that that protects California to some degree, uh, and that may be a question going forward um, in terms of, of what we have to do legally or the work that needs to be done nationally. So a lot of this is in the hands of Congress, and that may be the reason that people need to turn out to vote in 2022. This will be the voice that people in those states where their rights have been banned where they don't have access to abortion, this will be their moment to speak. So maybe that is the call to action as it relates to potential fear about a ban federally. That that is something available to people in other states to make their voices heard. I've been speaking with State Senate President Tony Atkins. Thank you so much for joining us. Maureen, thank you. The bodies of dozens of migrants were found Monday in the back of a tractor trailer in San Antonio. At least 53 migrants died in what is now the deadliest human smuggling case in modern U.S. history. KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis joins me now with more. Gustavo, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. So details about how people ended up abandoned in 100-degree heat in the back of a semi-truck are still unknown. What can you tell us about smuggling operations like this one? Well, they don't happen so much here in California, but, but it appears that it's a fairly common smuggling tactic in Texas. And unfortunately, migrants dying inside of trailers is not all that uncommon. Uh, back in 2017, police found 39 dead migrants in a trailer near San Antonio. Uh, in 2003, 19 migrants suffocated to death near a trailer outside Victoria, which is a small town between San Antonio and Houston. Um, Here in San Diego, migrants' illegal crossings tend to happen when people try to swim or take a boat through the ocean or when they hike up the mountains in the eastern end of of the county. Um, So this seems to be kind of exclusive to, to Texas. I'm just imagining how frightening it must be to climb into the back of a crowded semi-truck as a way to cross the border. Uh, You would really have to be desperate to make that decision. Talk about what leads migrants to make that choice. Yeah, well, I think you just said it, right? You have to be desperate, right? It's the same thing that leads migrants to hike through the desert here in San Diego or hop on a raft, even though they don't know how to swim, right? Their situation at home must be so horrible that they feel there's no other option but to come to the U.S. And they know it's dangerous. They know people die. Uh, but it's calculating risk, right? Do I stay home or, or do I go? And their situation back home is so bad that doing this dangerous journey is actually the, the lesser of two evils, right? And, and, and currently, the traditional path to asylum is blocked uh, because of policies like Title 42 and Remain in Mexico. So migrants who would normally have a legal pathway to get in here, or at least try to get in here, are now 
being forced to either stay home or cross illegally. So in a way, these policies are incentivizing more uh, illegal immigration, which is what all the advocates I spoke to said, that these deaths are preventable. They're the direct, direct result of U.S. border enforcement policies that simultaneously block legal access while also making it illegal, increasingly difficult to cross illegally. What's in it for smugglers? Well, a lot of money, right? I mean, smugglers are, in a way, the only group uh, coming out on top of the situation, right? The, the, the migrants are dying. Illegal immigration is still happening. Uh, taxpayers are spending billions of, of border enforcement policy that just isn't working. But from the smugglers' perspective, I mean, they can charge more money because their services are more in demand. And the harder it is for them to cross, the more they can charge. So so if anyone is is doing well, it's, it's the smugglers right now. You know, while this is the deadliest human smuggling case in recent memory, hundreds of migrants die each year crossing the border, as you mentioned. Uh, what does the data show there? Yeah, data unfortunately shows that deaths are up, right? Uh, data from Customs and Border Protection shows that fiscal year 2021 was the deadliest year for migrants on record. There were 557 migrant deaths along the border. So while this case in, in the trailer in Texas is, is the biggest in modern history, it actually accounts for a very small percentage of overall deaths, uh, which is something advocates I spoke with brought up. They're hoping maybe this can be a catalyst case for bringing more attention and, and getting people in Washington to, to really do something about this. And you spoke with some local activists who said in response to the 53 migrants who died that their deaths were preventable. What was their perspective? Yeah, that's right. I, we can listen to their perspective. Uh, we, we have a clip from Pedro Rios, who's a local activist here in San Diego, just talking about why these deaths are, are preventable. When the U.S. does not allow people to have their asylum rights recognized, it forces them to make drastic and dangerous decisions like getting into a tractor trailer or crossing through the mountains or crossing through the oceans where the likelihood of injury and death increases. And what do the activists you spoke to think should be done to prevent these tragedies from happening? Well, there needs to be a change in policies and, and multiple policies, not just one, right? Because there are two things happening here. Number one, legal access into the country is limited. And number two, we make it increasingly difficult and dangerous to cross the border illegally. Uh, so with the first one, there needs to be uh, advocates are saying an expansion, um, not just in asylum, but in work visas too, right? If there are more legal pathways to enter the country, migrants are going to take those legal pathways and not have to cross illegally. Um, the other one is, is, is a little bit harder to tackle, I think, which is stop relying on this uh, policy or strategy of deterrence as a way to stop illegal immigration. The theory of deterrence is essentially that if we make it so difficult and deadly to cross the border, no one will want to do it. However, we've been doing that for 30 years and it hasn't really stopped illegal immigration. Deterrence strategy doesn't consider the level of human desperation. It doesn't consider that some of these people are fleeing for their lives. So like I said before to these migrants, a dangerous crossing might seem like a safer alternative than staying home. And if we just keep on doubling down and doubling down on this deterrence strategy, uh, which which started by you know Bill Clinton and it was expanded by Obama and, and, and Biden is keeping it up. So it's not just a Republican-Democrat issue. Advocates are saying both parties are, are kind of responsible for these policies. And there needs to be some change. If not, we should expect uh, border deaths to continue. 
I've been speaking with KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate being here. Uh, Thank you. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The last of California's statewide eviction protections expire on Friday. Lawmakers extended the deadline back in March to give the state more time to pay out emergency rental assistance. But as KQED's Aaron Baldessari reports, thousands of people who applied are still waiting and could soon face eviction. Yurida Placante had to stay home during the pandemic to take care of her two young daughters. And when her son lost his job, they could no longer afford the rent on their Los Angeles apartment. She applied to the state's emergency rental aid program about three months ago. And I have not received an email, a car, anything from them. Nothing. California has distributed almost $4 billion in rental aid to nearly 330,000 households. But there are about 86,000 people like Placante who are still waiting on assistance, according to the National Research Institute PolicyLink, which has been closely tracking California's program. Sarah Truhaft is a researcher there. So that means that people will still be waiting in line and they will be exposed to eviction. They're likely to be evicted or have eviction proceedings against them. Joshua Howard of the California Apartment Association says his group is advising members to hold off on evicting tenants who are still awaiting aid. It's better to wait and get money than to go through with the time, cost, and stress of an eviction, especially knowing that those funds from the government are just around the corner. But some tenants have already been evicted. Delilah Medina of South Los Angeles has two young children. She lost her hotel job during the pandemic and started working at Walmart even though it was a big pay cut. She applied for rent relief and got some money, but had to reapply in January for more. Then she and her kids were evicted. We're not shiftless people. We're like the millions of Americans who don't make a wage that supports the rising cost of rent and living. Medina says now she and her children live in her car. They occasionally use a friend's house to shower and rest during the day. I ask you all, how many more families just like mine are going to suffer? Although the statewide protections are ending this week, renters in some areas, including in Alameda County and Los Angeles, may still be shielded from eviction. 
That was Aaron Baldessari for the California Report. A city of San Diego eviction moratorium will go into effect on Friday when the statewide ban expires. We'll have details on the city's eviction moratorium tomorrow on Midday Edition. The long, strange saga of 101 Ash Street took yet another unexpected turn earlier this week. Just an hour before city council members were set to vote on a proposed settlement over the former Sempra Energy headquarters and the nearby Civic Center Plaza, Mayor Todd Gloria withdrew the proposal altogether. According to the mayor, the unusual move was intended to give both the public and the city council more time to digest his settlement plan, although questions remain as to whether or not the proposal has the needed votes to go forward in the first place. Joining me now with more is San Diego Union-Tribune investigative reporter Jeff McDonald. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hello, Jade. So, Jeff, what were city council members set to vote on Monday, and what actually ended up happening instead? Well, it's quite a long saga. As you noted, last week, the mayor put forward a settlement plan that would buy out the leases for both the 101 Ash Street building and the nearby Civic Center Plaza, two buildings that are the subject of lawsuits filed by the city attorney in 2020 and 2021 over some uh, alleged illegal payments paid to a volunteer real estate broker or a real estate broker who was supposedly acting as a volunteer. What the mayor put forward, uh, alongside Council President Shawnee Rivera and Councilmember Chris Cate, uh, a week ago Monday was a $132 million buyout of both those leases. That's what was brought forward to the city council on Monday. And as you noted, minutes before the start of the hearing, uh, the item was withdrawn by the mayor, uh, supposedly to give the public and the council members more time to review the details of the settlement, which is pretty complicated, but does pay off the landlords 100 cents on the dollar. The city council has been debating this matter in closed session for months. I mean, why would Mayor Gloria have scheduled this for public debate only to withdraw it on short notice? Uh, Well, that's a great question. His answer, of course, is that uh, the community and the elected officials uh, deserve more time to study the details of the the agreement. Now, the scuttlebutt and uh, people at City Hall suspect that it's more likely he lost some support after details of the agreement were reported uh, widely, both by the San Diego Union-Tribune and other local media, yes. And City Attorney Mara Elliott has publicly opposed this settlement. What's her reasoning behind that opposition? Yeah, that was a really interesting development because up until last week, uh, both the city attorney and the mayor had been on the same page for this for uh, uh, on this issue for, uh, you know, since 2020. Her thinking and she issued a uh, 11 page memo or legal opinion outlining all the various reasons why it was not a good deal for the city and why council members should reject the agreement. First off, the cases are close to going to trial. They go to trial in January and, uh, you know, she feels confident she'll prevail. So she doesn't want to settle and uh, reward these defendants, quote, ill-gotten gains. Also, she noted the uh, the cost to the taxpayers was disproportionate to the value of the buildings. Uh, the city would agree to indemnify the defendants in future litigation. Uh, also, the agreement didn't really end the lawsuit so much as just write out the two main defendants, leaving this real estate broker and others to 
fight the case going forward uh, and assuming all those legal costs to the city taxpayers. So there were a number of reasons the city attorney's office put forward to the council related to rejecting the idea brought forward by Mayor Gloria. All right. So can you make it make sense for me? I mean, what are the pros and cons of paying for these properties through a settlement as opposed to just walking away from the purchase altogether? Well, that's a great question. The mayor's office uh, stressed that this agreement would provide certainty to the city. And yeah, it was a bad deal, but there are no good outcomes. And the the, the upside of this, uh, accepting this agreement was that it would give the city certainty in its legal strategy, but also give the city control of its own real estate planning needs going forward. Both of those are completely legitimate proposals, except they do kind of uh, gloss over the cost uh, for that certainty. And as I said, it's almost $300 million or more than $300 million uh, in additional costs for buildings that didn't appraise for anywhere near that. So uh, the question is, why is the city paying so much money for buildings that uh, that are decades old uh, in need of $175 million in repairs? And they might prevail in court that the contracts were fraudulent, as alleged by the city attorney. Do you think that this public opposition could have impacted Mayor Gloria's decision to withdraw the proposal? I do. I think that anytime people uh, register their concerns with City Hall, I mean, we all like to think that our elected representatives uh, are representing our points of view and that when a number of people come forward with opposition or support for a plan, that uh, the elected officials would be responsive. Equally important, of course, is the city attorney's uh, recommendation to oppose the deal. That's pretty unprecedented. As we noted in the newspaper last weekend, uh, it's the first time the mayor and the city attorney have diverged on this issue. They've been on the same page for a long, long time. And so when this proposal does return to the city council for a vote, members will essentially be making a choice between the mayor and the city attorney. Can you tell us more about how we expect this to play out? Uh, I wish I knew, Jade. It's been uh, <laughs> a lot of strange turns in this case since uh, since we first learned about the $18,000 a day the city was paying to rent a vacant building, which I think I reported more than four years ago. I'm not sure the deal's coming back. The mayor seems pretty confident. He said it would be back in approximately 30 days. Maybe it will. Maybe it'll come back in the same form it is now, but I'm not sure how an extra 30 days of analysis makes this deal look any, uh, any better for the new council members that, uh, you know, they're all going to be up for a majority of them are going to be up for re-election uh, and people are paying attention to this. So we'll see what comes back and whether it comes back in the current form or if it's amended in any further way. I can tell you the defendants were not very happy to see the delay. They were looking forward to getting paid off and having this uh, in their rearview mirror, as I think the mayor's office is as well. I mean, everybody's tired of dealing with Ash Street. But again, the uh, what'll be interesting to be uh, to see is uh, how it shakes out in court or whether the city council uh, you know, buys out the leases and settles this thing. I should say there's also a third case that's uh, not not uh, been um, discussed here, and that's the taxpayer case that uh, the former city attorney brought in 2022, and that's also scheduled for trial uh, as early as uh, January. So there's a lot going on with this, and uh, I think we all look forward to a resolution. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune investigative reporter Jeff McDonald. Jeff, thanks for taking the time with us today. You bet. Have a great day.
The San Diego Union High School District made its decision on Sunday. Board members voted unanimously to fire school superintendent Cheryl James Ward. Ward was hired last November and she was placed on administrative leave just five months later. Superintendent Ward made comments that offended some parents at a diversity, equity, and inclusion training session. Despite her repeated apologies, Ward is now out as superintendent, but she may not go down without a fight. Joining me is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. And M.G., welcome. Maureen, good to be with you. Can you briefly remind us what the controversy over Superintendent James Ward was about? Well, it all stems from that meeting, uh, that DEI meeting, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Uh, It was actually a training for the district back in April uh, when the discussion turned to reasons that Asian students received better grades than other students. Uh, Dr. Ward made a comment where she characterized and credited the success of Chinese students to their wealthy parents and extended Asian families who were able to support them. The implication is that other students did not have that privilege. And so that was the really the spark that started it all back in April. Now, the superintendent apologized on several occasions for those comments and the pain they caused. Why didn't those apologies end the matter? For members of the Asian community in particular, uh, they feel and they say that she hit wounds that go very deep, that her words were careless and they were racist. Those are characterizations that they've made. And therefore, she should be uh, fired is what they have wanted all along because of the uh, seriousness of the statements. She will tell you that uh, she felt the statements were taken out of context in that they were in a training session where discussion was going on. But even with that, she has apologized, as you mentioned, several times. But there are those who said no. What about the larger San Diego community? Were they split on Ward? Absolutely split. Um, there, She has a lot of supporters, uh, including students and other members of the community, Uh, Because they feel that in her short time as superintendent, she managed to get a lot of momentum in addressing racial disparities and in trying to unite various communities within the district. So given what she had accomplished in her short time, they were really excited and looking forward to what she could do for the district in the future. But now that's been cut short, obviously. Now, MG, I know that you've been in touch with Cheryl James Ward this week and spoke to her in an exclusive interview in late April about the controversy. She told you she believed her conflict with board members was behind the move to place her on leave. Can you tell us about that? Yes, Maureen, I have been uh, texting with her. She is actually out of the country right now, um, um, traveling with her family. And so she was very shocked uh, when she got the news. She had just landed in London when she received the news that she had, the news that she had been terminated. And so she was shocked and surprised that uh, it happened so quickly. The disagreement comes with um, a few of the board members. She believes, this is Ward now, her impression is that they hired her uh, to do their bidding, so to speak, be their yes woman, if you will. Uh, And some of that included uh, firing employees that these board members wanted fired, and she did not. So Ward is claiming retaliation, um, particularly from board member Allman, 
uh, and harassment. Uh, and she had issued a complaint against him. And that is kind of at the crux of all of this. So Cheryl James Ward was shocked at being fired. But is she planning any steps, any lawsuit, perhaps? When she talked to us back in April, I asked her uh, point blank, uh, will you resign? And she said, absolutely not. And then I said, what if they fire you? And she said, that is what they will have to do. And so now they have. And uh, through her attorney and actually through conversation with her, they do plan to file a wrongful termination lawsuit against the district. I checked with the attorney this morning. That has not happened yet, but it is in the works. Now, just taking a step back from this, the San Diego School District has been in turmoil for a while now. The San Diego County Board of Education had to step in and clean up the district's redistricting map last spring. The board members don't get along. And here's what one resident told the school board during this Sunday's meeting. Nothing you do today will end the chaos. The board is a dysfunctional family right now. And so that dysfunction started uh, two years ago. In the last two years, the district has cycled through four superintendents. Uh, two of the board members have been up for recall, and uh, a couple have resigned. So that's the dysfunction. Uh, there has been no consistency, and uh, the turnover is just uh, debilitating, uh, is what most parents uh, feel because remember, at the middle of this, at the forefront of all this, are the students. San Diego Union High School is con- uh, district is considered one of the top districts in the county, and so it's the students who really are suffering in all of this dysfunction. Who's in charge of the district now? The board named Tina Douglas as interim superintendent in uh, late April once they put Dr. Ward on uh, administrative leave. She has been with the district more in a business capacity, but Tina Douglas has agreed that she will stay on through the end of this next school year, which would be June 2023, giving the board plenty of time to try to find a new superintendent. And I just want to follow up on your point about the students. How are the students at San Diego and in surrounding areas reacting to all this? As you can imagine, they're confused, they're angry, um, and they're young. And so for, for this to happen in their district, it's really a teachable moment if the adults choose to do that. But what I can tell you is that members of the Black Student Union at Torrey Pines High School reached out to me, and uh, they are interested in being heard. So we will be talking to them later today and have their uh, story on uh, Evening Edition this evening. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. And M.G., thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. As California's craft liquor scene grows, some of the state's smaller distillers say their growth is limited by laws preventing them from shipping direct to consumers. Now a new bill headed back to a state assembly committee today could change that. Benjamin Perper has more on the story. After the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, the state allowed distillers to ship their product directly to adult consumers in California. And it kept a lot of the doors open because I think uh, without any income for 21 months, most of us probably would have had to, to close our doors because we would have had no access to sales whatsoever. That's Alex Villacana, the president of the California Artisanal Distillers Guild. He's also the owner of Refine Distillery and Villacana Winery in Paso Robles. He says the emergency provision allowing direct-to-consumer shipping expired last March, 
meaning distilleries like his are now back to pre-pandemic rules, unable to ship directly and limited to selling 2.5 liters per day per customer. They could buy three bottles of bourbon, but if they wanted a pallet of wine, I could load it onto the back of their truck and send them home with it. That led to Senate Bill 620, introduced in the state legislature last year by Senators Ben Allen and Bill Dodd. The bill, as initially introduced, would have let distilleries of all sizes ship direct to consumer in California with certain limitations. But the bill was amended in the Assembly last month to limit that privilege to smaller craft distilleries who produce less than 150,000 gallons per fiscal year. I think that's fair to say that there shouldn't be a law that discriminates against a producer who has had some level of success. That's Adam Smith with the Distilled Spirits Council of the U.S., or DISCUS. The group lobbies for distillers of all sizes, as well as provides economic analysis of the liquor industry for companies. He says DISCUS initially supported the bill, but changed their stance after the amendment. We're just trying to educate assembly members at this point on what what a good bill uh, would look like. Senator Ben Allen represents the 26th State Senate District within Los Angeles County. He says the bill has gone through several iterations and changed significantly, so he understands larger distillers' concerns. I respect the position of Discus. I mean, they know that we were with them from the very beginning, but this is where the bill got to, you know, in order for us to get to a place where we could get the bill out of the Senate. Allen says he had hoped for a compromise between the various interests representing smaller and larger distillers, but he says the bill in its current state is still a step in the right direction. I was hoping that we could find a, you know, some sort of compromise where there'd be a limited amount that the big guys could could use the bill to ship through but um, but ultimately that that didn't fly and so we're at a place now where we're only focused on the on the small guys Allen says even though SB 620 is now focused on the craft distilleries like those in Paso Robles there could be expanded direct-to-consumer privileges in the future the question of course is does it go far enough? And you know, that's a battle that's going to have to be fought in the future. Alex Villacana with Refined in Paso says the bill in its current form isn't perfect and could even limit his own distillery business someday. You know, if I grow big enough, I got up to that 150,000 gallon level and I was still, you know, uh, growing and, and I wanted to ship, I, I would love that cap to be higher. But Villacana also says expanding direct consumer shipping would help keep craft distillers around the state afloat now that the emergency provision allowing that is over. Unfortunately, if this bill gets killed um, and we have to start from scratch next year, um, a lot of the California distillers and even distillers across the U.S. will have lost, you know, uh, it'll be nine months this year and then probably another 12 months next year if we're lucky enough to get a, a bill through next year. That was Benjamin Perper for the California Report. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. 
Wild Song Productions staged three shows before the pandemic shut the young company down, but they return this year with a full slate of shows, including Jekyll and Hyde, which opens tomorrow night at OB Playhouse. It's a musical based on Robert Louis Stevenson's classic Victorian tale of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with actor Cody Ingram, who takes on the dual roles of the well-intentioned Dr. Jekyll and his bestial alter ego. So Cody, you are playing Jekyll and Hyde. So what is that experience like? It's fun. It's very challenging. As an actor, you spend a lot of time coming up with the character and making them real and, and what they want, what they desire. But then you have to do it for two different people and you have to find a way to switch between them and not make it look ridiculous. So it's been a wonderful challenge to explore that. When movies do Jekyll and Hyde, they have the ability to do special effects and editing. So when you're doing this transformation on stage, what are you doing and what are those challenges? So when I first read the book, the one thing that jumped out to me was this idea of not so much that the experiment caused Hyde to show up, it was that the formula triggered something that was already inherent within Jekyll. So I worked a lot with like the idea of dis uh, disassociative identity disorder, and that's kind of where the basis of my work began. This idea of in your brain, someone is sitting in the chair, whether that is Jekyll or it is Hyde, and Hyde starts to pull Jekyll out of the chair multiple times as he gets more comfortable and, more, and has more control over Jekyll. So I watched a lot of videos of people switching on camera and, and what that looks like, what that feels like. And that's, that's kind of where I started with my research. And that's really how I am approaching this. So this is going to be more of a like psychological transformation. Yeah, my, my body posture changes and the voice changes. I wanted there to be a way to show that Hyde was an extension of Jekyll. He's not necessarily a totally different person. He's Jekyll. If Jekyll were released and able to explore any inhibition times 200. And this is a musical. Mm -hmm. What's singing this role like? Do you, is the music like very different for Jekyll versus Hyde? Uh, so this musical was written around the same time as like the Popera, so Phantom, Les Mis. So that, that style is very particular to this show. We've really tried to add a lot of modern flair to it, but the, the style is something that I really wanted to honor and I really wanted to stick with. So singing it is actually very similar to where my voice likes to sit. It's a little more popera. It's like a little bit of operatic round tone with some modern flair, add some pop sound in there. And that's kind of where the music generally sits. So it's, it, it's just, it's really fun to mess around with that and to have that kind of ability to explore in that style. Somehow I've got to rebuild all the dreams that the winds have scattered from the bay. I'll retrieve what matters Somehow I'm beating until the evil and feeding beating Till my work's completed I will not be cheated! As an actor, I always ask myself, 
what do I get to experience today? And it's this idea of stepping into someone's shoes who, who thinks they are so altruistic and someone who is doing something that they feel is for the greater good, but then they become addicted to their own mistake, I guess. And I really wanted to show that Jekyll is not good. He's not evil. He's flawed, like, like most people. And you are working with a new theater company here in San Diego. And what is that like? It's been wonderful. I was brought on board for The Secret Garden. When they asked me to come on board, it was such a wonderful experience working with Wild Song that when they offered me the role to Jekyll, it was, it was an easy, easy yes, because it's, it's a truly wonderful experience to work in an environment where everyone supports each other. It's not competitive. Everyone is here to just do the best show they can from the production team down to, the, to all the actors. Everyone is just here to put on a good show and just really support each other. And that's, I think that's really special. And we are still in the pandemic. Uh, what is it like performing a show like this, which has some darker tones and is, you know, looking to our dark side and doing that at this particular time? Do you think people are going to be receptive to that or are they looking more for escapism of a different kind? I think people like to see stories that are truthful. And obviously this show has a lot of stylistic motifs on it. But the, the core elements of do we, you know, we choose what we become what we choose to be is very relevant in, in this time. And we are also really, you know, working with the idea of, you know, the, the, the class system in Victorian London and, and power over the working class and things like that. Those are themes that I think are very relevant today. And also I think people like to enjoy a journey that they can kind of watch from a distance, but experience for themselves as well. So I, I do think that this show has a lot of relevant themes to it. I think it will resonate with a lot of people. So you are back here at the OB Playhouse, which is a nice intimate space. And for a performer, what is it like being able to be just a few feet away from an audience performing a musical? I think it's a, it's a true privilege as an actor when you get to be so close to the people you're telling the story to. Here, we actually have a little bit of like you know, audience participation and there's actors moving through the house and that just helps the audience come into the world and immerse themselves in this, in this world of transporting to, you know, Victorian and, and Edwardian London at that time. And when it, when it is done in such an intimate space, it actually, I think, changes the dynamic of the story and you actually become more attached to these characters and their story and their journey and, and the audience feels like they are more a part of it rather than just sitting there and watching it happen. They are actually moving with the, the characters and moving through the journey with the characters and feeling what they're feeling. So I think, I think it is a rare gift to be able to have this space and, and to do that. What do you think it is about this story that has made it popular for so long? This story is just timeless, you know, from the time that it was written to the time it was done in the 1940s. Everyone knows the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Everybody kind of questions, is there an evil side and a good side to everyone? And the thing that I love about this story is, is this tagline that I, that I read, uh, which is, are we good because we are inherently good? Or are we good because we don't want to be punished by society? And I think, especially right now, there's a lot of questions about morality. What is morality? And, and what is 
accepted societal behavior. And I think this has a lot of tie-in to that. Well, thank you very much for talking about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Thanks for having me. That was Beth Accomando speaking with actor Cody Ingram. Wild Song's Jekyll and Hyde opens tomorrow at OB Playhouse and runs through July 10th. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.